So I thought we would continue on with our study that we started. I, I wanted to just, uh, just read uh, quickly from Psalm 86. Um, And, uh, sorry, it'll be Psalm 46. I just want to open up at verse 8 before we pray to just kind of set our hearts and minds to the God who is absolutely sovereign and this Psalm and this section of the psalm certainly reveals that beautifully. Let me just read verse 8 through 11 of Psalm 46. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And a verse we're all very familiar with, I hope. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. That's what he's saying. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let me just open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege to come before you washed in the blood of your beloved Son, that we might hear him, that we might hear these precious and crucial truths that you have revealed to all of humanity through your written word. We just praise you for these things, Father. We praise you, Lord, for what you have done in perfect obedience to our Father. And we just praise you for the continuing work that you do, sanctifying your people and setting every enemy of yours under your feet. Lord, we pray that this time would be one in which the Spirit of our Lord would open our hearts, illumine our minds, and just let us take in the truth of your words and find our hearts rightly humbled, thankful, and strongly desiring to share this precious gospel. And Lord, we pray these things always in the most glorious name we could ever know, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to just kind of recap a little bit. We covered a lot last week. Um, 
couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at some of the Psalms and we saw that in the deep, deep struggles of the psalmist, there was always a desire for the heart to rise to worship, to be with the saints and to be in worship, even when they, they can't. I think that's very important that we, we see that and that we understand that there's a very strong relationship between our meditation of the Word of God, our love for God, our love for the Word, and our love for the saints, those whom God has redeemed. I think that it stirs all that up and creates that special, unique love that the world looks at and says, wow. Even if they won't say it, they will just say, wow. I need that kind of love. That's the church. And it's most beautiful, beautiful way. We touched on something last week that I want to just continue to stir in your heart. And it's this notion that all of humanity, every generation, generation after generation after generation is on this. We talk about the Romans road. I thought about this this morning. But we're talking about the Romans slide of Romans 1. This is that downward slide of humanity. And I want us to see this morning with the text that we're going to cover as we move our way into this passage in Romans 1, uh, to reinforce what I talked about, the fact that every single one of us were somewhere on that Romans slide at various places, various degrees of sin, various degrees of hardness of heart. And it was God who snatched us right off of what was a free fall of loving our sin and the consequence that comes with it. It's so important that we understand that. Because I think it stirs us up to a right worship. And I want to ask a new question this morning. Does worship have something to do with this downward slide? And I think you're going to see after this morning that it absolutely does. And it's absolutely right there in this text. And I want us to see that. Does how we worship God contribute or produce this abandoning wrath? And when I say we, it's somewhere between the believer and the unbeliever, right? Because the believer is secure in Christ. But we are constantly exhorted in this life to be sanctified. And that principle of reaping and sowing lands on every human being. It is a principle God has set into life, right? For the believer and the unbeliever. So I want to just review a few passages and then introduce a few more. I'm going to go to Jeremiah 17 again because it's just such a helpful text. Because it says, Thus saith the Lord, Jeremiah 17, 5. We touched on it last week. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength 
whose heart turns away from the Lord. We're going to see that get built upon this morning. Jeremiah 17, 7 comes right back with, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. The object of our worship, of our trust, of our entire being is Christ. Ryan and I were just talking, it's Christ. It maybe is one of the... There are those who would tell us to unhitch ourselves from the scriptures. And he's saying this in order to concentrate our attention on the person of Jesus Christ. That may be the the truth that's in so much that is not true. Because how can you know the true Jesus Christ if you don't know the word which God gave us to reveal him? And even with that word, Israel missed it completely, didn't they? Jeremiah comes right back with, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Boy, if that shouldn't drive us to God, I don't know what would, right? Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Big theme that we talked about last week. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. There's that reaping and sowing. Now, I want to shift to Luke 4, and I want to continue this theme of worship. Look at Luke 4, verse 4, in the temptation of our Lord. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, which apparently Satan and Christ could do, right? Flash the whole, all the kingdoms of the world right in front of him. And listen to what Satan says and the fact that our Lord does not rebuke him. He said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, all the kingdoms of the world, all their authority, all their glory, I will give to you, Jesus Listen to this. For it has been delivered to me. Who is the ruler of this world? Do we think about these things? It has been delivered to me. And now I want you to see that even at Satan, two of the words that we hinged on last week about the mind were futile and debased. Look at the mind of Satan talking to the Lord Jesus Christ right here in this passage. And tell me, that isn't a mind that is trapped in futility and utterly debased. Spoken to his very own creator, he says, and I give it to whom I will. And there's the problem, isn't it? I will, not your will. If you then will what? Worship. And I, I just want us to pause on this thought of worship. 
And you have to ask with every person you encounter, every thought and intention of your own heart, what am I worshiping? And how does God see that? Because we know he does. And this section of scripture should hit us like a ton of bricks as to how God views worship and the fact that he expects it from every human being. That's key because that's why we're all on this slide until God snatches us off of it. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Boy, talk about the lie. And Jesus answered him, it is written with the right answer, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Spoken right to Satan, the unredeemable. Do you notice the centrality of worship? That was the response. Jesus at the woman at the well, I shared some of my experience with this passage and just the earth-shaking reality of this passage for me. He says in John 4, you, to the woman at the well, worship what you do not know. And it was that passage that caused me to ask, what do I worship? And would you give me the truth, Lord, about what I worship at that time as a Roman Catholic? But it's true of anybody who is not worshiping the true God and deceived horribly by false religion. What am I worshiping? What is its source? We worship what we know, speaking as a Jew, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is here when the what? True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, from the heart and from the soul, and truth, the revealed will of God, the word of God. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And we really ought to understand what that means. If those are the one the Father is seeking. And by the way, Paul's passage in Romans 1 tells us no one is seeking after God. It's the Father who's seeking after his people. That's amazing. And it ought to be a something that lifts us up and humbles us at the same time. Because we can ask, why Israel, God, just as quickly as we should ask, why me, God? Right? The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Ryan and I were talking about the millennial reign and the kingdom that comes. But look at Psalm 86, verse 9. I'll read it to you if you don't want to run to it. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Can you think of a time that that's ever happened in the history of humanity? I can't. Especially when you try to work your way through the book of Genesis, for starters. It is nothing but evil, wicked hearts 
generation after generation after generation, except for those that, and then sometimes only eight, right? So we began walking through Romans 1, 18 through 32 last week, and we see this long history of this generational judgment of God on each generation of humanity. We drew particular attention to the generation of Israel during the Lord's ministry. And once again, we ask, why Israel? And I think the best answer is because Israel, as we'll read from Paul, farther down in the book of Romans, of all the people groups, possibly were those with the possible exception of us who are absolutely without excuse. Absolutely without excuse. And they serve as a good example and warning for us on this side of the cross that they nailed their savior to. This is what Paul says about this, to try to, right? Some see it as a rough ship from Romans 8 to Romans 9. It's just a natural outpouring of the work of the Holy Spirit and the sovereignty of God and salvation. And he goes right to Israel to show it. So I just want to read you a few things about this. Why Israel, God? Look at Romans 9, verse 4. They are Israelites, and here's the no excuse. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. They had been given everything. God gave them all the oracles that would point to his son so that they and the world that they were to take it to would know the God of creation that they know exists. And Paul's heart is just ripped. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And he satisfied both lines, didn't he? Coming right to him through Joseph and Mary. If you haven't traced that back, you certainly should. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this is that old covenant thread that runs right from Genesis 3.15 to Christ. The promise. The promise. What was the promise from Genesis 3.15? There is one who is coming who will destroy Satan. <laughs> and Jesus encounters him in his ministry, thinking he's the sovereign over Jesus. Right? Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children 
of the promise are counted as offspring. And there's just one transitional thought. When we move to verse 14 of that chapter. If Israel had all of that and received the abandoning wrath of God generation after generation, what do we think is happening in this country? There has been no country, second only to Israel, that has been so privileged. How many Bibles do you have in your home? How much access do you have to Bibles, to the Word of God, to churches, to truth? We can't avoid it. And yet, look at the country. And it comes right back to, how do we worship God? Do we worship Him according to His Word? Or is it self-styled, man-centered, leaning towards entertainment, where Christ is not at all the object of that worship? And the question we're going to keep asking in this passage, how does God react to that? And I think you'll see a fearful answer. Yeah. That's the spirit and the truth. In the Bible, there's only so many forms of worship, singing, clapping, lifting holy hands, shouting, dancing. Those are all forms of worship. Singing is not an option. The Bible commands us to sing. Mm. One of yep. That's the point. We are always worshiping something. Don't ever lose sight of that, right? No, it's perfect. You replace football with ten million other ways that we seek our satisfaction and fulfillment. It comes, thank you. It comes back in 9.14, Romans 9.14. What shall we say then? Paul was always anticipating the rock. Right? He used to throw them, now he's receiving them. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Now there's a shut your mouth passage, isn't it? Isn't it really? That's God's response to who are you, O oh man, to question my 
justice. If you are that man, it's because you don't understand from where we came and were snatched off of, right? So important. And it just stirs us up to right worship. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not, here it is, on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. Pharaoh had no idea. Just as Satan has no idea, it seems. Just as many of the leaders that were instruments of God had no idea, they were perfectly satisfying the will of their heart and never realizing they were an instrument of God to fulfill his often wrathful judgment. Isaiah 10, if you need to go read it, it's vivid. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's Paul's introductory response to what about Israel? I want to dovetail back to Romans. Look at Romans 3.19, and then we'll sneak our way towards the passage that we'll touch on most likely next week. But look at Romans 3.19. After this long discourse pulled from the Old Testament where we hear, no, not one, no one seeks after God, their throat is at all these, that's got to be somebody else's passages, right? This is where Paul winds up. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is what is so abhorrent to God. When you consider that apart from true, biblical, born-again Worship, every other system is in one way or another trying to satisfy the law on our hearts and in the written word or the doctrine of that church or religion. And it is putting the primary factor for salvation on man. Because Paul moves beautifully from that rather all-inclusive passage to this intervention of the Father that snatched us off of that road in Romans 1 that we were on, right? He says, but now the righteousness of God in verse 21 has been manifested completely apart from the law. The law did one thing. And if you know the Lord, you know what it did. It cut you before God and declared you guilty. And if the Father hadn't pointed you to the cross of His Son, you'd still be there. 
You may have wept. You may have transformed yourself from drugs to this to that, but without Christ as the object of your worship because what he's done on the cross, the Father has not brought that about. (laughs) And that's what Paul is revealing here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, here we all are, for all have sinned. Now I want you to think about we were all on that road. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, instantaneously declared not guilty, even though you know in your heart at that moment you are guilty and worthy of hell. That is the blessed work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. If it's an obligation or something we're working for, it is no longer a gift. We hear that all the time, but we need to think about what does that really mean? And how easily do we slip into that performance-based system, even on this side of regeneration? I've heard pastors from the pulpit talk about when they came to the Lord, they negotiated with the Lord. (laughs) It's fearful to me. It leaves me wondering. If you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you. Makes me wonder, is that why you're in the pulpit? Because of an obligation that you made to God? Like that? As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And there's where we jump in and say, okay, faith, I I got that faith, but you got to go to Ephesians 2. And I want you to see vividly where we are and what God has done. Classic kind of indicatives and imperatives of the Bible. What has God done? What is our rightful response to it in order to worship him rightly, right? Read your Bible with those two things in mind. It'll just, by the way, Romans 1 through 11 are all the wondrous things God has done. Romans 12 on are all the proper responses for us to make, indicatives and imperatives. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And I want you to think about being snatched off that Romans 1 road, the wide road, as Jesus would call it. But look how Paul brings this absolutely into vivid color for us. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, if you think you're not part of this crowd, we all once lived. This is the greatest danger for the child that grows up in a Christian family 
and in church their whole life. They look at this passage and say, not me. I'm a good kid. I was raised in church. You've heard it. Once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature neutral, <laughs> children of wrath. What does that sound a lot like? Romans 1, 18 through 32, doesn't it? Like the rest of mankind, but God. Put a big square over that, but God. Every time you encounter one, because, just because, right? Look what comes next. Being rich in, here comes that mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, which, as we know from John, is the only reason we love him. Even when we were dead in trespasses, sliding down the Romans one mud pit. Right? That's the way we tried to explain it to Gloria the other day. Right? You're sliding down a mud hill, and there is nothing to grab hold of. Nothing. Made us alive together in Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Now what launched us into here is where does faith come from? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's as good as done. We're, we're, we're working our way through. We're muddling our way through. We're struggling our way through. But in God's eternal finished work, you're already seated with Christ. It's finished, he said. Isn't that beautiful? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, where he'll lavish the kingdom as co-heirs, friends. I don't think we think enough about that especially in this mess down here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And look what Paul says emphatically. And this is not your own doing. That's why Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father calls him, because it's the Father who's seeking. And he's seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth, and apart from their divine triune work, they would find no one. That is a hard thing for us to get our heads wrapped around. It is the gift of God, not a result of, there it is, works. so that no one may boast. There's another shut your mouth <laughs> passage, right? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, wait a minute, for good works? You can't get to the cross via good works. But if you've generally come through the cross 
and are born again. Works now become the means by which you worship God by being conformed to Christ. Mm-hmm. It's, that's, one of the, that's another part of the gospel, particularly when you're speaking to people who are deceived by false religion, that you have got to go to the scriptures because it is the power of God, not your delivery of that message, and help them understand and question, which side of the cross am I on? Because every false religion has them on this side of the cross working to be good enough to stand before a holy God who could never be just and allow them to be saved. Right? And what would God the Father be if in fact there was a way to be saved? As so many have said, powerful evangelists have said, there are many ways. God has a wider mercy. Then you mean to tell me he crucified his son and didn't have to? That's where that has to come to. This is how you have to get into this gospel discussion from the word of God. And these are the strongholds that we're talking about. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And this is my favorite part. Which God prepared beforehand from before the foundation of the world. He laid out your entire life of sanctification. If that doesn't make you think when you encounter an opportunity to exalt the Lord and from where that came from and the fact that it is not even remotely random, I don't know what will. It should change every time you encounter a circumstance where you have the opportunity to exalt Christ because it is God the Father who laid that right in front of you from eternity's past. Now there's a thought that we couldn't even begin to imagine if it didn't rise right up out of Scripture, right? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Which brings us right back to Romans verse 18 verse through 23. And I just want to walk through just a few things here. And then we'll wrap up and kind of warm us up for next week. And I'm going to run you over to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25, to do that. Familiar text, but I want you to just hear it, given everything we've just talked about this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25. I'm going to just read right on through verse 31. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, as if to say, Ryan, you don't even exist. You're such an idiot. That's what he's saying. You, you don't even exist. To bring to nothing things that are so that, and here it comes again. You see it? You see the centrality of this issue in our worship? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, all of it, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. There's your worship, your rightful worship, okay? So I'd like you to just encourage you to spend some time this week in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Just, just meditate. Walk through that. And I want you to think about, if you don't think this way, Try to think about the cause and the effect in that passage. There's several. But you're going to zero in on two primary causal factors that then produce God's response. I'd like you to go fishing for those in that passage, and then we'll come back next week and talk about them some more. Okay?